I've said to you before that that hymn is uh, the favorite, according to Charles Spurgeon. It was his favorite. Charles Spurgeon describes his conversion with these words. Through the Lord's restraining grace and the holy influence of my early home life, both at my father's and my grandfather's place, I was kept from certain outward forms of sin in which others indulged. Sometimes, when I began to take stock of myself, I really thought I was quite a respectable lad. And I might have been half inclined to boast that I was not like other boys, untruthful, dishonest, disobedient, swearing. But all of a sudden, I met Moses, speaking of reading the Old Testament, carrying in his hand the law of God, and as he looked at me, he seemed to search me through and through with his eyes of fire. And he bid me read God's ten words, the ten commandments, and as I read them and remembered what I'd been taught about their spiritual meaning, they all seemed to join in accusing me and condemning me in the sight of a thrice holy Jehovah. Then, like Daniel, my decent life was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. And I understood what Paul meant when he wrote, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world become guilty before God. For years, Spurgeon would say that he remained under the heavy conviction of sin until one Sunday morning, January of 1850, when he was traveling to a particular place and a snowstorm cut the journey short and he entered into this little primitive Methodist church in Colchester. Here's what he said happened. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And when he had managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few people present, he knew me to be a stranger. And just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> How would you like that to happen to you this morning at church? <laughs> well, I did, he said. I did look miserable, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made, from, made about me from the pulpit. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you'll be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. In that moment, I saw at once the way of salvation. I'd been waiting to do 50 other things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone and darkness had rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him, end quote. So there is a young man brought up hearing about the gospel from his parents, grandparents, brought up around moral principles, etc. But 
but unattached to them by faith, not really believing them. And then the Lord sort of orchestrates circumstances in his life to bring him to read the law and then come under his conviction and know that he's a sinner and see it differently, yet still not saved. And in a snowstorm one night, the Lord cuts his journey short and in the providence of God, he goes into a church and it isn't even the reigning preacher of the ministry, it's just some guy. He's got one text and about 10 minutes worth of stuff to say. And in that moment says, look to Christ, and the Lord calls forth faith from Spurgeon's heart. He nurtures the spark. He pours grace upon his sad, sinful life. The faith is sparked into a flame, and it's nurtured and strengthened, and he finally is converted. It is true that salvation can only come to a broken life by simple faith. But even if it is a simple faith that brings us to Christ, it is also true that it cannot on its own spawn that faith, bring the faith about. Human beings on their own can't generate it, call it forth, nurture it, can't make it happen. We are, as the scriptures say, saved by grace through faith, yet that not of yourselves. It isn't generated within us on our own human power, it's impossible because that would mean we could boast. It wouldn't then be the gift of God. By our own initiation and power, we can't muster up enough desperation or true conviction of sin to want Christ on our own. By ourselves and in our own human power, we can't overpower our unbelief. We are born unbelievers, we want to be unbelievers by nature. We can't call forth true, genuine faith. We can't even nurture a weak faith so that it it moves toward the Savior as if to draw itself to Jesus. We can't do it. Only the Lord can providentially work out all the circumstances that will bring the desperation level needed, that will bring about the shattering of our pride so that we see our sin rightly. Only God's power can overcome the self-centered, unbelieving blindness in our nature. He is the only one who moves toward the sinner first. He's the only seeker who truly calls forth that spark of faith. He calls it forth. He spawns it. He pours flame on it. He fans it. He nurtures it. He strengthens it. He brings it about. And the next two events in the life of our Lord in the narrative before us in Luke chapter 8 illustrate this very reality. It illustrates God's willingness and his power to overcome human unbelief. And it illustrates his grace to call forth faith and nurture it, even though it's a fledgling faith, even though it's just a spark, even though it is minimal insofar as the human mind would assess things. Take your Bible and look with me at Luke chapter 8. God has been displaying his power. The Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, has been walking the earth and demonstrating he has power over nature, power over evil, power over sin, power over everything in the known universe. And in every text in the narrative, it is a confrontation between the power of God and the so-called power of the religious institutions, the false worship that man erects in his heart 
to, to make a monument to himself, and yet it is nonetheless powerless. Begin in verse 40. Follow along as I read through the end of this chapter. As Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they'd all been waiting for him. There came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as Jesus went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, who's the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she'd touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has saved you or made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. Her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Amazing. But it's, an, it's a providential working of God to bring about a particular effect. He is working on the hearts of some individuals, and he interweaves circumstances in his wonderful providence to make some things happen here that are very instructive for us. Now, just as we look at the narrative, verse 40 says Jesus returned, and of course, you know if you've been with us in our study, he's had quite an amazing visit to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, The last 24 hours, as you recall, has been really an astounding display of divine power. It was incontestable proof that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, to be from God, to be God in human flesh. It was true. It was proof, incontestable, unassailable. He is, in fact, who he says he is. And as they were going across the lake, you remember that violent winds and waves became instantly still at the mere sound of his voice commanding them to be quiet. And then as he reached the east side, you remember there were legions of evil spirits that had cased that land and held it in bondage through two particular individuals who were possessed by all of these evil spirits, using these human beings as tormented instruments to to hurt people and kill and maim and 
They couldn't even lock them up in prison. And there they were out in the desert, driven out by the evil spirits. And Jesus comes to the shore. They acknowledge who he is. You are the Holy One of God. And he tells them to be quiet. And at the sound of his voice, they are instantly subdued. Their violence stops and they're driven out. In fact, so vivid was the illustration of Jesus driving them out, it was no mere platitudes because people could see that the wealth of one of the local farmers had 2,000 swine fall into the lake or driven into the lake as the demons were given permission to enter the pigs. Just a graphic display that there was, in fact, evil spirits involved and Jesus did have authority over them. Jesus arrives now the next day back back to the northwestern sort of portion or area in and around Capernaum. And it's no surprise that as he sets foot in the villages there, there's a large crowd, and they had sent word, no doubt, around the edge, uh, keeping track of Jesus' movements, and they know that he's back. The tense of the verb here indicates that they had all been waiting with anticipation and tension. They were impatient, uptight. They had people that need to be healed. They wanted to see him do miracles. They wanted to see supernatural phenomena, so they weren't going back to the routines of their life. They weren't going back to the daily routines they were normally about in their day. They weren't even listening to naysayers. Oh, he's just a quack. Leave him alone. They would have none of that. They were waiting all night for him to arrive back on the shore. That is not a surprise given the displays of power. And we're introduced then to two desperate lives Two desperate lives. The first we're introduced to is, is a, a broken father, a disheartened father, verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and began to entreat him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. The first thing we notice about Jairus is that he is, of course, a very important figure in the Jewish uh, part of the leadership there in the northern part of Galilee. He was uh, an official in the synagogue. He ordered the services. He set the functions. He called the rabbis. He organized what took place. He was over it in terms of the giving. He took care of the finances. He was the leader of whoever would be a part of the Worship of the Jews at the synagogue there. And he was desperate to the level of blowing past reputational issues. That's why Luke starts it by saying, Behold, here's an amazing thing. Every Jewish hub along the North Shore was hostile to Jesus, and Jairus was right in the middle of it. All of the Jerusalem Sanhedrin hated Jesus, wanted him dead. Word was on the street that this guy was someone to be taken down. Jairus was clearly in the middle of all that. If Jesus came and even attended a worship service, they would confront him, try to challenge him, to embarrass him, try to see if there was a way they could get the crowd out of the way and take him by force. If he was the teaching rabbi on the schedule and he would teach, they would complain about his expositions and then at times... Uh, indicate that he inaccurately interpreted the scriptures in reference to himself. If he proved what he was teaching was true by the display of his divine power, they not only got angry at him and ignored the miracle, but at one point, not too long before this, they tried to throw him off a precipice and kill him instantly. 
Synagogue officials were not in favor of Jesus' ministry. And so Jairus was right in the middle of it, and he was no doubt well known for being in league with the Sanhedrin's desire to put Jesus to death. And notice here, Luke is saying, take a look at this amazing level of desperation. He falls at Jesus' feet and begins to entreat him to come to his house. So Jairus is right in the middle of all that hostility, but he throws all that off, and he comes up, falls to his knees, puts his face near Jesus' feet, and begins to beg the Lord to come as an honored guest to his home. This was the normal display of the Middle Eastern or ancient Oriental act of subordination. You went, you fell to your knees before the one whom you were about to beg for whatever it is you needed. It was an act of subordination. He comes to this superior. He's indicating publicly that he sees Jesus as one who can meet his need. And he's making this solemn, this formal request at Jesus' feet. This is a shock. This is, this is not what a synagogue official was ever seen doing. And by the way, though this is a normal act of subordination, we, we don't see here any proof that he's a real believer in Jesus. There's no indication yet that Jairus came because he put his faith in Jesus. There's nothing here to suggest that he's a true believer. He's just desperate. And he's no longer concerned for what a connection with Jesus might mean to his, his position, his reputation, and maybe even the trouble this will mean for he and his family. He's just desperate. The Lord, when he uses circumstances and is about to move and draw men to himself, sometimes it, it, its initial work is about drawing someone who's clearly an unbeliever and mystical. This guy's likely superstitious. Look, the guy's a miracle worker. I, want, I need his miracle work. I, I want him to invoke whatever power he taps into. And his desperation is obvious, verse 42. He's a parent. He is a parent. Notice he had an only daughter, 12 years old. She was dying. So the full sense of his desperation hits home now. This is a dad with an only girl. It's his only child. And she's at the threshold of death because of some illness that they've not been able to take care of. Some of you just immediately are sucked into this guy's world because you've lost a child. My wife and I have lost a child. We know what it's like to hold our dead child in our arms. This is a dad. Who cares about his job? Who cares about his position? Who cares about what this might mean for the future? I don't care. I'll pay it all. Give it all. It doesn't matter. You have power. I don't really care who you are. Just do the thing. Just do the miracle because he knows the implications. It's his only daughter. A daughter was a comfort to a dad in her older years. Sons were usually gone building the empire and the legacy, etc., and they would come back for burials and even often visits, and if they lived in the same compound, they might have that privilege, but daughters were a great comfort to dads and grandparents. They still are today. Daughters are a tremendous gift from the Lord when that heritage and that link and that legacy is there. He knows that's that's about to be done. And not only will he be grief-stricken all his days and ache with that 
that indescribable sense of loss and loneliness. There will be no more hearing her sweet voice and the comfort of his later years. But then there's also no betrothal, no wedding for her to celebrate her entrance into full womanhood. None of that. No son-in-law to befriend and disciple and therefore no legacy and future for whatever it is he's going to pass on. No grandchildren. So his desperation is understandable. It is normal for the circumstances. But know this, it isn't a result of anything supernatural in him. It's merely natural. We resonate with it. If he has any spark of interest in Jesus, it isn't real faith yet. It's just a superstitious belief in paranormal powers. Mark 5.23 says that he went to Jesus and he said, just lay your hands on her and she'll get well. He's, the, he's all about the, the touching, the physical touching. Just do this and that power thing will happen. Come and do the thing you've done for so many So he doesn't know if Jesus is the Messiah. But boy, if he could tap into this deal, that would, that would meet his need. And listen, this is the grace of God because though Jairus, uh, though his belief is primitive and ignorant and mystical, Jesus is in total control of the situation. And so what he's gonna do, what the Lord is gonna do is he's gonna initiate a circumstance that will open Jairus' eyes. It's going to open his eyes to the truth and draw him to real faith. It's going to call faith forth in divine power and nurture that spark and strengthen it into real faith. That's what the Lord does. He uses instruments and circumstances and timely moments when he is calling someone. Both Mark and Matthew record that Jesus went immediately with Jairus. That's the mercy of God. You know, I, I think about this. He's a synagogue official. He's been hostile to Jesus before. Probably stirred up quite a bit of it or in and around Capernaum. I mean, I almost imagine Jesus saying, oh, oh, I see. I see. You stir up hostility toward me. I can't even come to worship service without your arrogant challenges. And when I taught, all you did was bring your ignorant uh, dispute of what I taught. And then my power proved that I was teaching what was right. And you tried to throw me off a cliff, you and your, your boys. And now when you're desperate, you want to come to me? Sorry, too late. You know, there's, there's no rebuke at all for this mystical, you know, desperate, pathetic scene. Jesus just goes immediately. Is that not kind? That's just like the Lord. We shake our fist at, at the Lord and then he brings about the right circumstances to crush our pride. We come back to him and say, okay, 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 I give, I give. And the Lord doesn't begrudge any of that. If it's faith he's producing, if it's a spark of real faith he's nurturing, he just opens his arms in grace and love. And that's what he does here. He goes immediately. Jairus couldn't get back to the house with Jesus soon enough, but... But his circumstances take a turn for the worse. Verse 42, as Jesus went, the multitudes were pressing against him. And this is exactly what you'd expect, pushing and shoving. This entire crowd is swaying back and forth. I mean, Jairus used to be able to get the crowd to sort of part like the Red Sea when he came around. People moved out of the way. Now he's with Jesus, the miracle worker, and they're being crushed by the swaying and pushing and shoving of this big crowd. All kinds of people touching them, and Jairus can't get the people out of the way. 
And they're pressing against Jesus, and the volume of the dynamic of that crowd has brought this mission to a halt, and so now you can just sense the tension in the scene. They immediately go to Jairus' house, but, verse 42, as he went, the crowds pressed against him, and so now you meet the second desperate person. We met the disheartened father. Here you have now the discarded invalid the discarded invalid, verse 43, and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. Stop right there. Mark's gospel tells us that she had spent her entire life's money on many physicians to take care of this particular problem but she was no better and had suffered under those many remedies, whatever they were, and she grew worse, Mark's gospel says. It's also interesting to me that providentially you have uh, what Luke records here as the number 12, sort of like a marker in the providential workings of God. You've got this 12-year-old girl who is in desperate need and her father is on the edge of his, his life and his world, and here you have a 12-year-old disease and so it's just interesting in the providence of God, he sticks all this together in a circumstance to make it memorable. We're not told what the affliction was specifically, but we can surmise a few things about it. First of all, it was life-threatening because it was blood loss over a long period of time from the vitals and the reproductive area of a woman's body. This is a massive problem because it, re- it involved blood loss that many physicians could not take care of. So clearly they all saw it as life-threatening, at least life-debilitating. And she had suffered with the problem for 12 miserable years so far, and more than just the physical pain and suffering, it, it had isolated her because the religious community, according to Levitical law, would have nothing to do with her with such a disease. She was considered by Levitical law unclean, therefore if the Jewish religious system isolated her, then society would set her aside. They didn't know whether it was leprosy, they didn't know whether it was contagious, they didn't know what the problem was, but if it's unclean to the Jews, she doesn't need to be around. So she is alone. She's especially without spiritual help, the very people she needs for comfort and truth. No one will come near her. So she's gotten used to, over the 12 years, hiding behind the scenes. We can also surmise that this affliction then came with a measure of shame, being considered almost like a leper. So if you just open the scenario up, she's basically housebound, she's discarded by her hometown, she spent all her resources on a cure that, that never really pans out, and even physicians have given up on it. And in fact, all the remedies have not only made her suffer more, but the problem has gotten worse. The disease has, has been augmented. So you have a disheartened father and a discarded invalid, and the Lord just intersects their lives. Why? Because he is about to manifest how he works in the heart to birth faith and nurture it, and then use that to strengthen the faith of another. This really isn't about the woman What happens to her is marvelous, but this is about Jairus. This is about what he needed to see and the mercy of God showed him so that he would then respond. That's what the Lord does. Tailor-made. 
So the desperate lives are clear to us. Now we come to the delivered souls, the delivered souls. Notice what the woman does. Verse 44, she came up behind Jesus and she touched the fringe of his cloak. That's what she'd been saying to herself, according to the other gospels. If I could just get near enough to touch him or touch his cloak, then I will be healed. That's what she kept saying to herself. And so she did it. She pushed past the shame, kept herself low to the ground, didn't, didn't get involved in the crowd, probably very hooded and shrouded. No one uh, there had noticed at this point that she was there because they weren't trying to get away from her. She was just another one in the bustling crowd. I think it's great the way the Lord shrouded her by a crowd pressing in on Jesus. Otherwise, she probably never would have come. They would have sent her out of town. But the Lord in his grace puts a crowd around Jesus so no one knows who's touching him when. And she touches him, and shockingly, this hidden believer immediately is healed. Her hemorrhage stops. It stopped. Verse 45, she's outed. Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And they're all, they're all denying it. What? I, I, yeah, what? I mean, it, it's like the rabbi said, don't touch him. We, we, I didn't do it. Well, he never said don't touch him, but that's their whole reaction. They're all denying it, and Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. Isn't it interesting? Probably sick people, probably diseased people, still pressing in and touching Jesus. They're not being healed. God's grace is not drawing them. They're all touching Jesus. And Jesus said, verse 46, someone did touch me, for I was agnon. I was aware within myself that divine power was at work. Well, of course he was aware. He's God. But what he's saying here is, I am aware within my mind, within my divine will, within my divine purposes. Within my divine person, I'm aware when real faith is has been nurtured and real divine powers at work on the heart and the life. I'm aware of it. And while walking, I'm aware that this divine grace was dispensed for real faith. What, a, what an amazing moment. A strange thing for him to say. When you read it, you're, you're just amazed. Here's the Lord saying, who touched me? People are pressing all around you, Lord. No, who touched me? Because I am aware within my divine person that grace is at work. I've purposed for grace to be at work, and I want that person to admit it. I want them to confess it. I want to put it on display. I want to make it public. I want her to say it. Say what I've been doing with all these people around touching me. I want her to say what I've been doing in her heart. I want it outed. I love that. You know, if the Lord works on your heart and he saves you, it's not time to go to the mountains with a bunch of canned foods and get silent. It's not. He wants you to put his power on display by speaking how it was he called forth faith in your life. And so he outs her, and power had gone out. He was aware of it. And verse 47, when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, whose notice? His. She thought she could touch him. She was healed, stunned, sitting there. She didn't just want to move away. 
just be quiet, kind of move on. But when she saw that she'd not escaped notice, particularly his, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared. This is why Luke puts it this way. She declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she'd touched him. That's what the Lord wanted. The reason why I touched you is because I believed that you could save me, could heal me, could give me peace. That's what he wanted to hear. He wanted the crowd to hear it, and particularly he wanted Jairus to hear it. And he also wanted everyone to hear her say, I was instantly healed. You don't have to worry. Not only am I not unclean on the outside, I'm no longer unclean on the inside. This man converted me. And isn't it interesting that God can use any instrument he wants? I mean, for, at this particular point, it was a tassel at the end of a rabbi's robe. There's no power in a tassel. There's no power in physical clothing. There's no power in her hand. There's no power in her faith. Faith is not a force. Faith faith is entrusting yourself to God. Faith is an empty-handed receiving of what God says. That's what faith is. It's not a force. God is the force. God calls forth faith. He produces it. He sparks it. He nurtures it. He makes it happen and fans it into a real flame. He quickens us from the dead. But God can use any instrument he wants. Maybe for you, it was, it was a, an illness. Maybe for you, it was someone coming in and grabbing your hand and telling you the gospel. Maybe for you, in your spiritual life, it was an instrument of not a disease, but maybe a person that you really trusted, or maybe you saw someone apostatize, or, or maybe you grew up in a false religion, and maybe God used that as an instrument. He uses circumstances and instruments to tailor-make how he's going to call forth faith in your heart. And you're to tell of it. The circumstances and the message are the instrument. The faith is what God produces in you by which you then receive openly his promise. You repent of your sin and you believe it. And he's the grace and power behind it all. And by the way, Jairus needed that graphic illustration because it, it, the whole thing just falls apart. It becomes a worst case scenario. Notice verse 48, Jesus says to her with all the assurance of the divine Savior, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's the only woman he's ever called daughter directly in the New Testament in his ministry that we know of. Daughter, daughter of the family of God, my daughter, the one I birthed, your faith has saved you, literally, or made you well. He's not just talking about the physical, because then he says, go in peace. You're, you're at peace. You're at rest. You got healed because you had real faith in me, which I produced. But while he was speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died Don't trouble the teacher anymore. So you go from this hidden believer who's assured by Christ and healed by his divine power, you go from from the hidden believer to some, some public mockers that are in and around Jairus' life. And they're saying, she's dead. Don't, don't bother him. And, and it's probably a little bit of contempt here. Don't bother the teacher anymore. I mean, I can't be dogmatic about that, but it sure seems to be what I would say if I were an unbeliever at the time. You know, you couldn't 
get through the crowd to come over and save this little girl? You started on your way. Don't you even know timetables? Aren't you supposed to be tapped into God's divine timetables? Didn't you know this was going to happen? Look, don't bother him anymore. She's dead. Sure seems like a possible attitude. When Jesus heard it, he answered, don't be afraid any longer. Here it is. Only believe. And she will be made well. So you have a worst case scenario that turns into Jesus' call of faith. It's a well-timed call to faith. He'd, pre- he'd prepared Jairus, prepared him with his public official office. He prepared him with all of his hostility to Christ. He'd prepared him every time he'd seen or heard a miracle. He'd prepared him with all the messages from the gospel. And now he's prepared him with this graphic illustration of a woman who has faith. And Jairus would never touch that woman. He would never go near that woman. He wouldn't think that woman would be ever an object of God's love. But now he's seen it. And so a well-timed call to faith has been prepared by the Lord Jesus and in that moment he reaches out to Jairus and says, only believe. Forget your position, forget your feelings, forget this intense uh, reasoning that's going on in your mind. Is this real, is it not? Forget all of your superstitions. Believe me. Believe that I'm the Savior, I'm the source, I'm the power, I'm the message, I'm the truth. I'm the way. Believe me. And it's going to be great. You're going to be taken care of. I'm going to provide for you. She's going to get well. So, what a well-timed, tailor-made moment. Now, there are some scoffers around. Verse 51, when he came to the house, he didn't allow anyone to enter with him. Except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Why? Well, verse 52, they, they were all weeping and lamenting for her. And he said, stop weeping. She's not died but is asleep. It's difficult to know in the text whether this is a reference to the people he kept out of the room or a reference to the parents and Peter, James, and John. But there's nothing in the text that indicates that Jairus wasn't hopeful and believing. There's nothing to indicate that the wife, though maybe tearful, was mocking There's no indication that Peter, James, and John are included in the next statement that there was laughing going on when Jesus said, stop weeping, she's not dead. So Jesus goes into the room, most likely excluding the people that aren't believers. They're not even interested. Why? Because he's he's not moving on their heart that same way. They're just mockers. They're scoffers. They began laughing at him knowing that she had died. Now, we know she died because verse 55 says her spirit returned, so her spirit was gone. But this is not a text trying to describe where the soul goes, how the soul separates from the body temporarily. It's not describing anything about the afterlife. What it's describing is Jesus' sovereign power holding it all, intention. She had died, so the physical life is without the spirit. It's without her personhood. Her personhood is not alive in the shell of her physical life. Her body's dead. There it is. And so Jesus says, look, she's not dead in the sense that you think. She's asleep. What did he mean? I'm going to call her spirit back to life. The body's just waiting. It's temporarily waiting. They scoffed anyway. Verse 54, 
even while they were laughing because they knew she died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. Oh, just like that. And she got up immediately, just like that. And he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. You say, what's that about? Well, first of all, the Lord is tender. She's 12 years old, probably physically drained by the disease. But more importantly, what he's essentially doing to the people around them is making sure they don't go run off in all their superstition. Oh, we saw a ghost. Did he really raise her? No, I don't know. It was a ghost. I'm not really sure. So Jesus says, get her some food. And when they see her eating, it's the same old 12-year-old. It's the same girl. This is her. She talks like human beings. She eats like human beings. She needs strength like human beings, physical strength. I returned her to her normal state. And you can see it by the evidence. She needs strength. Give her strength. Of course, he'd raised her body. He could strengthen her instantly without food, but he doesn't want that. He wants her to go back to normal life. He wants them busy about normal life. He doesn't want them sitting around going, oh, tell us about it. What was it like? When were you, were you sleeping? Where was your soul? They don't want to do all that. Let her be 12. Let her be newly resurrected. Let her enjoy life as it was before she died. That's Jesus' point. I restore. I make alive. I bring to normalcy. I calm spirits. I bring peace. I love that. Resurrection power on display. But God has a sovereign purpose because he's got one major problem. This is Jairus. Jairus is a synagogue official. I mean, he has connections all the way down to Jerusalem and they can go as fast as lightning, faster than a church gossip chain. Word would get down there fast, wouldn't it? Jairus' daughter, a synagogue official. Well, that's a problem for Jesus because all along his ministry, he is providentially controlling and sovereignly working the circumstances so that he can actually get down there at the right time and give himself over to the Jewish leaders for his ultimate sacrifice for sin. But not before. It's not his time yet. He's still got more people to reach, more grace to dispense, more people to heal, and more people to save. And so he does the unthinkable. He instructs them to tell no one what had happened. Oh, my word, you got to be kidding me. Can you imagine that night? Okay, now, he says to his daughter, now, listen. I know you were resurrected from the dead, and we're your parents and all. We can't say anything. That's, that's probably not what happened. It would be like you and me. Uh, okay, Lord, I, I don't know why we would. Wow, that's, how could we help that? The crowd saw it and heard it, so clearly... He wanted the ripple effect to go out from a synagogue official that Jesus is in sovereign control. Trust him. It was another moment of grace for the Lord to say, trust me. If I've got this kind of sovereign power over death and can raise someone to life, I have a plan. I have a purpose. It is to dispense more grace. You don't want the Jews coming up here and trying to force something early. God is sovereignly working out his plan to dispense more grace until the time when he gives himself over and lays his life down. Here's an implication from this. If you know that God has called forth faith in your heart that way, if you're here today and you know and love the Lord, you're converted, 
it didn't come from you just mustering it up. You weren't going along as a pagan and decided one day, you know, I'm going to try Jesus because I think he's a pretty decent guy, and as I believe in him, he should realize I'm a pretty decent person. It didn't happen. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or outright wicked, as wicked as you thought you could be. God worked the circumstances in your life and my life to bring about instruments by which you would hear the message And through those instruments, he would circumstantially put you in the place where he was beginning to draw you to himself and spark faith within you and cultivate that and nurture it and then strengthen it. And if you know that's how you came to Christ, then he wants to grow your faith between now and when you meet him. So elbowing him, resisting him, getting out of circumstances that he's put you in to strengthen your faith muscle is not a good plan. It's not a good plan. When Abraham had believed God, that was all the way back in Genesis 15, he believed God, he had faith, he was converted, he's now God's child. But even Genesis 22, God had to test his faith by saying, give me the son of the promise. Put Isaac on the altar. Put all your hopes and dreams on the altar. Put my promises where they should be, at the center of your heart and faith, not your circumstances. I know your circumstances don't look reasonable. I promised you a son. I gave you a son. Now, you, now I'm saying give him back. I know that doesn't seem reasonable. I know that doesn't seem rational. I know it doesn't seem right. But trust me. I am testing your allegiance and your faith. I'm growing your faith. And Romans 4 says Abraham's faith grew. He grew strong in faith when he believed God in hope against hope. Why are you elbowing God's plan out of the way? Why are you trying to put up roadblocks to whatever he's put in your life? It's a circumstance he wants to intersect with you to grow your faith, this faith that he began, this faith that he sparked, this faith he called forth. He's growing it, nurturing it, strengthening it. He can be counted on. You didn't save yourself. You didn't bring about the circumstances that brought about your conversion. You didn't orchestrate them. God did. He did because whomever the Father has given to the Son, he will raise you up on the last day. So you're, you're part of his plan. You're swept up in his divine plan to give you faith at a particular time. He worked all the circumstances out to do it, and he called you, and you came to know him by repentance and faith. Don't imagine it was your own power, and if God orchestrated all that, then why? Why argue and push back at the means by which he's strengthening our faith with those wonderfully intersecting and interwoven circumstances that he, that he puts together? He knew what Jairus needed. He was going to call Jairus to faith. See, how do we know Jairus believed? Because his daughter was made well. You remember what Jesus said? Only believe and she'll be made well. He believed she was made well. Not because of his faith as the power, but because of God's grace, which produced the faith. That's how it happened. So God knew what Jairus needed. God knew what the woman needed. And he brought the circumstances together to strengthen this wonderful work he was going to do in each of them and make them no longer desperate lives, but delivered souls in real faith. This is the effect your conversion ought to have on your life. Your conversion, as God has brought it about, ought to affect 
the future strengthening of your faith, no matter what tailor-made circumstance he brings to do so. In hope against hope, you believe and you grow strong in faith. That's what God teaches. It is God's power from start to finish. Amen? Bow with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving us this wonderful interwoven story of of how you call faith forth and nurture it and fan it into full-blown communion with you. What a sweet, tender picture of, of bold faith in someone that circumstantially wouldn't be equated with anything bold. A shamed woman who is impoverished and behind the scenes and looked down upon and and yet she has such a robust trust in you that you didn't even have to be paying particular attention to her in the moment. You cultivated faith in her and it was real faith and it resulted in this wonderful peace brought to her life. And yet it was a great and much needed illustration for Jairus who would have thought he was worthy on his own being an official in the religious services of Israel. He would have had self-righteousness and yet you brought him to desperation through the sickness and death of his daughter and you made it his only daughter so that his desperation would push past the reputation and he could have gone to any shaman but he came to you Even in his superstition, you were gracious and went to his house. You purposed an illustration where he's held up in a crowd and this woman, her faith becomes wonderfully displayed and then the delay results in the death of Jairus' daughter and the grief of his heart only because you were going to call him to real faith. Just believe And so he believed, and it was true. He was freed. Lord, you're such a kind God. You know what it takes to save us. You know what it takes to grow our faith. We don't. We push against it too much and all the time and because we're not believing your promise. Help us by your word and through your strength and in your grace to put the word of God into our minds and then entrust ourselves to it open our hearts in an empty-handed receiving and just put ourselves at the disposal of your character and your promises. Please forgive us for elbowing you and putting up roadblocks and resistances. No wonder our faith can be so weak sometimes, not only because we're weak and need you, but, but because we, we don't want to exercise the faith muscle at times. It's just We're fearful and petty and small and unbelieving. But you're great and loving and merciful, so pour pour it out upon us. Help us to grow. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.